Warning, this is not your father's history. This is not the history your coach taught you in high school. And you won't find it on the History Channel either. No, you see, this is the history your mother warned you about. This is History Against the Grain with your hosts, Chris Paget and Josh Weiner. Welcome to episode three of History Against the Grain. How you doing, Chris? Hey, I'm doing okay. Uh, listen, episode three, you kidding me? It's crazy. This thing has taken off. I was joking before that we used to be professors who had a podcast, and now we're podcasters who happen to teach at a college. It's, a, it's been a quick transition, but uh, I think it's easier because we never leave the house. So that, uh, that really eases the transition from uh, actually going to work. And, and I agree. I agree. And I think that Three episodes in now, it's what in, in, in sports, in the sports world, they call momentum. We've got some momentum. Numbers are rising. Again, we don't talk about numbers on this podcast. It's strictly about history. We don't do numbers, but uh, yeah, the numbers, numbers are rising fast. We're getting fan mail. Um, yeah, it's, it's really sweeping the nation. People are stealing our, our best lines or we're stealing theirs. Either way, I don't know the causation or, or what came first, but there's a zeitgeist going on now. Well, when it's, when it's us stealing someone else's lines, we call that sampling. It's sampling. That's right. It's okay. Yeah, yeah it makes it okay. You, you tell the folks now that we're on, uh, we're, we're worldwide. On all the available platforms, at least the ones that we're available on. I guess you're listening to this, you already know which platforms are on, but we're, uh, you know, as of last week, we're on Apple Podcasts as well, uh, Spotify, and then you can listen to us through Anchor. Um, and then you can listen on your desktop through whatever uh, desktop app you have as well. And so that's nice. Uh, hopefully we'll be on more as we go. I think Google, uh, the Google podcast is still to come, but we're hoping we'll get that. And uh, yeah, this thing is, it's building. It's fun. Yeah, it is. We'll keep doing it as long as it's fun. How's, how's that? Um... Well, usually how this works is that by the time it's built, then you can't stop because whether or not it's fun, it's just the thing you do. So I think we'll have to like build this up and then momentum will just roll downhill for as long as we can. Downhill being the operative. Yeah. We're down. Okay. Yeah. Well, we'll try to, we'll try to keep it on the up and up, even as we go downhill. Uh, I I've come up with, as you know, a kind of tagline for folks who are just tuning in perhaps to history against the grain for the first time. Uh, this is where you hear Josh and Chris talking shit and talking shop. I like it. I don't appreciate that, that language. I think we're gonna have to put the explicit tag on our, on our podcast. I've been trying not to do it, but now, now we've, we've crossed the line, I think. It's like a PG movie in the 80s. You get like four shits, and then it turns PG-13. Josh, I'm a product of, of movies I watched coming up in the 70s, and I take no personal responsibility for the scatological language yeah, that may were- come out of me as a result. I'm simply a reflection of the culture that raised me. That's right, you were raised wrong. Yeah. Um, all right. So any other news we got to, we got to get through here before we get into the, the most popular segment, which I like just, I say, I have no, I have no proof that it's the most popular segment. I'm just assuming that people love our next segment. If we keep saying it, it's true. That's right. Uh, it's the, it's the secret. Isn't that the secret? Do people still do the secret? <laughs> We're an uh, open book here on history against the grain. There's absolutely. No we, we, we let you see behind the curtain. We let you see, let you see the sauce being made. 
it's all it's all right there we are transparent time for love and hate so this time you're taking hate which means you go first that's the the precedent's been set hate comes first we get that out of the way and then we get to cleanse with a little love Yeah, now I was thinking if this were America's favorite game show, if this were a Jeopardy game, the answer would be trumped up hate. There you go. And the correct question would be, what do you get when you combine unforgivable acts of callous corporate greed in our current pandemic with the over malaise, overall malaise of our current politics? Yeah, trumped up hate. That's what I'm That's calling it. You know, but, you know what? but first yeah. some love, first some okay. love. I got to give love to all our brothers and sisters out there working days and nights uh, in the midst of this coronavirus in, uh, in making sure we all don't starve to death. That is from the farm workers to the grocery store and grocery warehouse workers, the truck drivers. Uh, I've been thinking about these folks as I found myself hoping that there would be, in fact, food at the local uh, grocery establishment. And, you know, I came across, I'm, I'm on Twitter occasionally. That's a bad uh, idea. For as long as I can stand it. And then, you know, I got to get off. But I, uh, Robert Reich, who was the labor secretary back in the Clinton years, a Berkeley professor, economist, Robert Reich had a tweet. And if you'll allow this, I want to quote his tweet. He said, nurses are always essential. Farm workers are always essential. Grocery store workers are always essential. Truckers, always essential. Billionaires are not. All right, so as Robert Reich points out, uh, the work being done in this time of pandemic is being done by, by folks in what we sometimes call these service industries. And yet it's the billionaires who are holding the purse strings for so many of them. And it's that essential fact that brings me to this week's trumped up hate moment. And I started on this as I was reading an article in New York Times, uh, the headline, Gaps in Amazon's Virus Response, Fuel Warehouse Workers' Demands. It's an article written by Karen Weiss and Kate Conger. They wrote, many of Amazon's 400,000 warehouse workers have stayed on the job, fulfilling the crushing demands of a country suddenly working and learning from home. Orders for Amazon's groceries, for example, have been as much as 50 times higher than normal. Now, as was widely reported last week, workers working in a Whole Foods uh, corporate chain in the warehouses and in the retail stores called for a sick out to protest what they consider to be unhealthy conditions in the workplace, dangerous working conditions. Now, Whole Foods, owned as it is now by Amazon, decided to take retaliatory action and fired one of the protesting workers, uh, a man by the name of Chris Smalls. Now, the reason given for firing Mr. Smalls was that he disobeyed a company quarantine order and showed up to the workplace to join with his fellow workers in this protest. 
But as was first reported online in Vice, was during an Amazon corporate meeting attended by, among others, the well-known billionaire plutocrat and malefactor of great wealth, Jeff Bezos. Ooh. Thank you. I was going to pause for booze. Uh, along with Amazon's top lawyer, who advised a strategy of making the fired worker, Mr. Smalls, out to be the face of an illegitimate and dangerous worker movement. He's not smart or articulate, said Amazon General Counsel David Zabolsky, referring to worker Chris Smalls. And to the extent the press wants to focus on us versus him, we will be in a much stronger PR position than simply explaining for the umpteenth time how we're trying to protect workers. I guess that's the part in his notes that was followed by, you know, protect workers, yada, yada, yada. That is a, that's pretty rich coming from Amazon. Yeah. So, okay. So these comments are quoted from notes, by the way, that Mr. Zabolski had written for the meeting uh, and, and subsequently were forwarded apparently throughout the company, uh, but ultimately leaked uh, to the press that, that revealed that smearing the reputation of warehouse worker Chris Smalls was Amazon's best bet to dodge Dodge what? Um, bad publicity for Amazon, I guess, maybe? Uh, corporate responsibility? But after receiving some strong blowback, Zapolsky issued a statement. I'm not calling it a, an apology, Josh, but I'll let you, know, uh, let you decide that. The statement read in part, I let my emotions draft my words and get the better of me. That's not very satisfying, is it? No. Were you thinking heartfelt? Or, I don't, yeah. I don't know. He put a good 15 seconds into, into resp- making that response. So I, I appreciate the, the time you spent on, on crafting such a, a long, well thought out well, I, uh, yeah, emotional right? response. It's often the case when you're going to smear the reputation mm-hmm. of one of your, your workers for the benefit of, you know, saving face corporate saving face that, yeah, you know, your emotions tend to get the best of you. All right. So for his part, the fired worker, Chris Smalls, I'm happy to say was not buying it. It's a shame on them. Smalls told Vice News. This is a proven fact of why they don't care about their employees to fire someone after five years for sticking up for people and trying to give them a voice. Now, despite what the lawyer said about Mr. Smalls not being articulate, et cetera, I found him to be extraordinarily articulate. In fact, in a piece that was published in The Guardian, uh, Chris Smalls wrote, the lack of protections worried me. Inside the warehouse, there are gloves, but they are not the right kind. They are rubber instead of latex. There are also no masks. Hand sanitizer is scarce. There are limited cleaning supplies. People are walking around with their own personal hand sanitizer, but good luck finding one in a local grocery store. That was the unforgivable crime, I guess, that Mr. Smalls had uh, committed was in acknowledging that. And and he finished the piece. He said, they have no idea what they're talking about, meaning the Amazon corporate management. They spin stuff. They lie. They downplay. I'm not a manager. I am not a manager all of a sudden, he said, who uh, was informed that he was not uh, an assistant manager, though that's the job he'd been performing. I'm an hourly associate said uh, Chris Smalls, at least that's how they were framing him now. That's what they do to the press. They tell you all a bunch of lies, uh, 
and everything is what it is. So listen, uh, my friends, so much love for the grocery workers, yes, and the farm workers and the truckers and the warehouse workers who keep us from starving in this time of pandemic. I'd say, I'd say they're heroic. And for the billionaires, well, nothing but my trumped up hate. Yeah, that's, that's great. I only have one, one problem with what, what you just did is that I think it's the first time it has not been, it has been legitimate hate and not trumped up hate. <laughs> Our last two were, were almost jokes. This one is some serious stuff. You're taking us into in a new arena here. Was it something in the timber of my voice that told you that? Yeah, well, like quoting newspapers, doing research. I don't know if this is a good precedent for, for uh, future loves and hates. Last night, I stuck my head out the window and screamed to anybody who could hear it. I'm mad as hell, and I'm not going to tip. Well, save uh, us with some love. Yeah, I got some some love to share. This time, you know, we've been doing, we did music the last couple of times. I'm going to do a book this time because I'm, uh, I'm a very well-educated person. I, I'm trying to prove my education. That's what books are about, right? You read books. I read books sometimes. Um, so this is a book. It's a fiction. It's called The Years of Rice and Salt. And it's by an author named Kim, Kim Stanley Robinson, um, which makes it sound like he's the most British person ever. But he's actually lives in Davis, California, home of your alma mater, University of California, Davis. Um, yes, I, I myself if, once a resident of that fine town. There you, yeah. And so you might have been Kim Stanley Robinson's neighbor. Who knows? Uh, and the, the years of rice and salt is uh, what we would call um, speculative fiction or alternate history, maybe. Um, and it starts with the premise. Uh, well, it starts with the armies of, of Timur, the, the great Central Asian conqueror and, and uh, builder of empire. Uh, and it starts with a scouting party that goes off from his main army and moves into Eastern Europe. And what they find there is that a plague is struck and virtually everybody is dead. And so the story then proceeds from that moment in 1403 with this plague having struck Europe with the European population, therefore decimated, virtually wiped out, and then tells the history of the next 600 years, right up until the 21st century of a world that develops in the absence of Europeans. And it's this brilliant book that, that takes us kind of not year by year, certainly, but takes us through the lives of particular people. Uh, those people all die at the end of the story or the story fades out. And then we pick up again with another group of people at a different time in a different place. And we kind of watch how the world develops in this, in this way without um, the European presence. Therefore, the Europeans never colonize the Americas. Therefore, there's no Columbus. There's, uh, there's no um, the United States. And so we get to see, you know, a, a vision, at least a version, at least of what that world would look like. And it's very well thought out, very well uh, researched. It's based on, you know, a good understanding of, of the histories of the various peoples. And, you know, this is not like this is what would have happened. But um, but it's it's just a really uh, it's, a, it's a book of ideas, as, as I saw it described in one place. Um, and it's not triumphal, by the way. What's yeah, that? I love it already. I love and it already. It's not supposed to be triumphal. The idea that Europeans are gone doesn't mean that therefore there's this utopia. There are problems and there are wars and there's persecution and there's all these, these issues, but it's a different world that comes out of it um, with different powers, 
uh, with different people going through their own kind of uh, cultural efflorescence. Yeah. Um, and so just a, just an enjoyable way for, for if you love history to read um, alternate history, which is almost always seemingly about World War II. I feel like 96% of alternate history somehow involves World War II. Um, but this one doesn't involve World War II, doesn't involve Europeans. And so, you know, in the context of what we were talking about last week, how we, we kind of uh, decolonize world history, um, what he's done to decolonize world history is just taken that whole uh, story out of it. You don't get Europeans, you don't get the European Industrial Revolution, you don't get the expansion of the Americas, you don't get 19th century imperialism. And then we get to see what that world looks like absent those things that have been so uh, fundamental to not just what history is like, but the way we think about history in the uh, in, in current times. You know, and thank you, by the way, for not uh, providing a spoiler, because I I want to find out how it all, all turns out, you know? Well, I, I will say I don't want to spoil anything. I will say there's a very obvious organizing principle behind it that I did not figure out until I was reading a review of the book after I finished it. So uh, hopefully if, if people out there read it, you'll figure something out much more quickly than I did. Uh, and the book will make a lot more sense uh, because you have a brain that apparently I was lacking when I was, when I was reading the book. Uh, but no spoilers. But if I had to guess, if I had to guess the spoiler, it's that Jeff Bezos ends up as the autocratic ruler of a one world government on a, another planet. No, I told you this is a utopian version of, of history where Jeff Bezos is never born. Oh, oh okay. Yeah. It's, uh, it's the perfect counter to your hate, I, I would say, in that sense. Uh -huh. I love it. That was a productive uh, love and hate, wouldn't you say? Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I, again, I, I, I like the fact that you brought in some, some real hate to the, to the occasion, some serious stuff uh, to go along with our usual joking. And, uh, and I got to pre pretend that like I read books. So that's nice too. <laughs> well, I think that's the perfect opportunity then to take uh, this into our third segment now uh, where... Uh, I will invite you, Professor, to riff on one of your favorite subjects, uh, borders, uh, environmental history, and the world. Yeah, so this is going to be something we're going to talk much more about later in the episode, uh, but I want to do a little bit of a world version of this. You're going to talk about North America somewhat, and, and this kind of started because you, you've been reading this book. I'm sure you'll talk about it, um, but you sent a map from that book, and it's a map of the, um, the Great Lakes Basin. Um, and it doesn't have any of the national boundaries on it. It doesn't have the state boundaries either for that matter. And so you see this, this map of something that should be familiar to anybody who's looked at a map of, of North America, but it looks so fundamentally different because these artificial lines aren't drawn on. And I think that's one of the strengths, or it can be one of the strengths of world history, is that you can do this world history, particularly the early part of world history, without imposing these national boundaries onto a map that they don't really make any sense on. Right, so the, the, you look at Europe with all the lines you, you're so used to seeing, you look at Africa with the lines you're used to seeing, the Middle East with the lines you're used to seeing. Um, but when you start world history from the beginning, those lines aren't there and they have no relevance for the lives of people that you're talking about from most of the history. And so when you kind of do particularly that, that early world history, the thing that stands out is that the boundaries that matter are the actual boundaries that exist, which are natural boundaries. The boundaries that divide people, the boundaries that, that bring people together are things like rivers and oceans and mountains and deserts and tundra and whatever other geographical quality you want, you want to, uh, to, to name here. But those have real effects. Living on a river means you can travel more quickly. 
meaning that people who live along a river are going to interact more. And where they interact more, you're going to see, uh, you know, uh, more sharing of stuff. There's a whole theory of the kind of quote unquote beginnings of, of Chinese civilization that has a bunch of separate, uh, you know, societies living in, in small towns along the Yellow River um, Basin in Northern China. And over time, what's able to happen is that through interaction, they begin sharing stuff and bit by bit, you know, one town's, you know, pottery style begins to move to other places and, and kind of take over. Uh, one other town's, you know, uh, uh, version of, of, um, of weaving is going to spread from place to place. Uh, and so bit by bit, these little aspects of culture are able to split, spread along the river basin. And eventually this coalesces into something like a unified culture in, in Northern China. Uh, as opposed to that, you can look at, for instance, the Atlantic ocean, the Atlantic ocean is this massive barrier. Uh, and the, the, what the Atlantic ocean ultimately does is it takes, uh, Western Europe, it takes West Africa, and it creates these pretty for, firm borders uh, through which humans really can't travel for a long, long period of time. And that means when you go across the Atlantic to the eastern seaboard of what becomes the United States, what becomes, uh, you know, what we call Central America and South America, uh, those places really have no interaction with, no connection with these places that are across the Atlantic Ocean. So it becomes this, this clear barrier. And one of the interesting things that happens across world history as you kind of follow this path from beginnings to, to, to the present is that you can kind of tell a narrative of world history in which you increasingly figure out ways, humans increasingly figure out ways to leap over those boundaries, right? To figure out a way to climb the mountains and cross the mountains and cross the lakes and cross the seas and cross the deserts and cross the tundra. And as they do so, they interact with new people. And through those interactions, they begin sharing things. As they share things, this process we call globalization occurs and increasingly people become more similar. And kind of bit by bit and stage by stage across world history, humans figure this stuff out. And barriers increasingly or decreasingly uh, come to mean less and less in that sense. Um, and so by the time you get to, we'll say the Mongol era of the 13th century, the Mongols are now creating this empire that crosses most of Eurasia. Uh, even the areas they don't, they don't actually conquer now come to contact with the broader world in much more intensive ways. Um, and so what happened in a relatively disconnected world by the time you get to the 14th century is um, fundamentally connected, at least large portions of North Africa and West Africa, the eastern coast of East Africa, the whole Mediterranean basin, large part portions of Europe, Central Asia, East Asia, Japan, Southeast Asia has become this world of interaction. And that's all kind of about overcoming or figuring out ways around these natural boundaries. Now, of course, one implication of overcoming those natural boundaries and bringing people into more contact is disease are, diseases are going to spread. And so we see this great set of, series of pandemics, we'll say, in the 14th century that generally uh, we talk about as the Black Plague. Uh, but historians increasingly believe that rather than just one um, set of or one disease that spread from east to west, and, and places beyond, there was a series of outbreaks of different diseases that struck across the world. And the effect that that has is all that growth that had been going on in the previous centuries, all that expansion, all that interaction suddenly comes to a halt. And as a result, a lot of uh, the economic relations uh, begin to uh, decrease. A lot of the economic growth begins to reverse. The expansion is going to stop. And it's not really in until late in the 15th century that we begin seeing expansion once again.
And so these natural processes, whether it's borders or disease, have this enormous impact, first of all, on who can interact and who can't interact, who's uh, able to access those interactions and who's going to be isolated, who's subject to diseases and who is free from those diseases. And when expansion begins again, and you know Europeans get on their boats and start crossing oceans, it now brings the Americas into the, into the story. And the Americas now become uh, a, a part of this world of interaction. And then also very, really significantly, it changed the nature of the Atlantic Ocean, which goes from being this, this barrier, one of the most significant barriers uh, that humans have had to cross up to this point, and it turns it into this highway of interaction. And now you get these interactions between West Africa, the Americas, uh, Europe, uh, Asia, eventually as the Pacific gets crossed. And we kind of slowly build into this, this world of interaction, this world of sharing, this world of globalization. What's interesting here, and, and now as a way of getting back to borders, is as those natural boundaries become less and less relevant. Because for most of human history, the things that mattered were those natural boundaries. The natural boundaries were strong, and human-constructed boundaries were virtually meaningless. Right? You look at empires in the pre-modern world, empires generally didn't have a great sense of where their borders were. Right? You could walk out in a certain direction, and at a certain point, people were not paying tax or tribute to the central state any longer, and that's where the empire ended. But there wasn't necessarily a map that had a firm boundary that said, this is where our uh, this is where our sovereignty ends. This is where someone else's sovereignty begins. It's a relatively recent phenomena that we've begun marking those things on maps. So as those natural boundaries become less and less relevant, what happens uh, instead is that humans begin constructing these new kinds of boundaries, these boundaries of the mind, essentially. Uh, and these boundaries come to take on more and more meaning. And so what we see is this, this relationship between the strength of natural boundaries and the weakness of human-constructed boundaries eventually shift. And now we're at a time in which the human-constructed boundaries are perhaps stronger than ever, more significant than ever in some ways, uh, while those natural boundaries have become virtually meaningless as various technologies, both communication and, and transportation technologies, have made any space across the earth uh, able to be traversed by human voices, by human words, or by humans themselves. Uh, so just world historically, it's fun uh, to trace this story of interaction, this story of boundaries, and watch the way that humans kind of build up their boundaries, build up their own boundaries, rather, even as those boundaries that nature left us become less and less relevant. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of food for thought there, isn't there? Um, the idea of a boundary, as you, as you point out, either being uh, an impediment of some you know, natural formation an ocean, a river, a mountain chain, what have you, uh, implying what it does. And ultimately, as you point out, most of those sorts of, of boundaries were, you know, were eclipsed in some fashion um, versus the, the boundaries of the mind the, that is the constructed, maybe, again, we're going to be more specific in referring to borders, you know, when I talk here in a minute about North America, a border is a kind of constructed boundary, boundary of the mind, if I understand you correctly. Yeah. That really historically is a fairly recent phenomenon. Is that right? Oh, definitely. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so the, the thing is, this is another example about how European history uh, kind of takes over world history is that Europe became such a special case across the world because after the fall of the Roman Empire, there's not a resurgence of any kind of you know, European uh, empire. In, in other words, Europe itself does not become the, the home of a new empire 
that rules over this territory we now call Europe. And instead, what, what emerges are these separate kingdoms, uh, which increasingly over time become more aware of their separate, at least political identities. And so Europeans, probably earlier than other peoples, be, do begin tracing those, those, those human constructed boundaries much more definitively than we see in other places. Um, and then when they are going to spread out across the world, they bring that they idea with them, them in some ways. If I can throw in, they call them borders, correct? They I call mean, them that's borders, the nomenclature. Yeah. They become legally, politically defined, whether via the kingdom or later the nation state as borders. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, even, you know, into the early modern period and, and probably into, um, you know, fairly late into the 18th century, those borders were certainly not as tight as they would become. Um, there's all kinds of fuzziness across those borders, as there are still, I would say. Um, but, you know, the, fa the famous case of Alsace and Lorraine, these two provinces of France or sometimes Germany, which sit on that border between France and Germany, but have this, this uh, because of, of where they are, there's German speakers and French speakers there. And as a result, nobody really knows what to do with them, right? Because they don't fit that, the, the, the kind of cultural model of, of what the territory should contain. Um, but, but yeah, Europeans are, are figuring this out in a way before other people because there just exists in this very tightly packed area of a lot of separate states that create a, a greater need between, uh, a greater need rather, to construct some idea of boundaries than is necessary, for instance, for the Chinese who can spread to the West, deep into the West in many cases. And what they find there are, are non-state actors in, in some cases, um, nomadic peoples. And there's less need to then define a boundary between us and them to a certain extent. The Great Wall is kind of a boundary, uh, but, uh, but it's still not necessarily drawn on a map in the same way that we're going to see in, in Europe, um, you know, prior to the, to the modern age. Well, you know, one of the ideas I want to explore uh, in episode three today is the meaning of these boundaries as they translate into borders that is defined uh, geographically, legally, politically, how, however imprecise, there are constructs and, and that a great part of their value, particularly for the nation state, is the implicit meaning they create in the minds of the people who within, live within those boundaries. And you know, we were talking the other day, you, you were on uh, Amazon. <laughs> yes, as our favorite place. I think you were run by a favorite person. You sick at, weren't you, uh, of uh, Amazon. But uh, you were looking at, at book titles and what uh, history book titles, I believe. What did you find? All right. But one of the books, one of the books I found was a book that seemed really relevant to your own interest, we'll just say. Uh, and so it's a book by Dave McCullough, a uh, very, very popular historian, um, a guy who has written book after book after book, mostly about uh, the United States. And remind me of the title of that book. The one that is so apropos for this week the pioneers, the historic, or excuse me, the heroic story of the settlers who brought the American ideal west. That is perfect. It's the, it's the, uh, it's the perfect example of the kind of thing that boils your blood, isn't it? I texted to you, and I feel like I could hear you shudder 200 I'm miles away. It was, yeah, I'm pretty certain it was deliberate. For but, you, yeah. He wrote that to yeah, troll yeah, you specifically? Yeah, exactly. Um, I think, I think you en enjoy seeing my blood pressure ascend. Yeah. So yeah. talk, talk about what, what about that title is, is so infuriating. So the pioneers, uh, 
you know, our, a mythologized chapter of our, our nation's history, as is the West generally. Uh, we want to see this story in terms of these, you know, these, these uh, dreaming, um, salt-of-the-earth uh, folk who in their covered wagons, uh, their wagon trains, somehow blaze a trail across the continent and carry with them the seed of American civilization. As in the title of McCulloch's book, it's a heroic story. Um, so it, it predetermines the kind of pitch of the narrative that you're going to get uh, in this history. Now, I, I, could, I could go off, you know, and, and, and say that, well, of course, it was the U.S. military who, you know, who preceded the, the heroic pioneers. But, I, you know, I'm, I'm going to save that for now. What I want to do instead, you know, with this, this trope of, of American history, this, this mythic West uh, and its pioneers, I want to just compare it to a different title of a book that I'm going to feature today for my part, uh, dealing with a similar historical circumference, but a very different title. This is from Michael McDonald, and he's an academic historian. Uh, as you pointed out, David McCullough writes for a popular uh, audience, an academic right. historian. He's a, he's a, he's a professor, um, uh, a historical scholar uh, working in academia. This, the title of his book is Masters of Empire, Great Lakes Indians and the Making of America. So a Great. couple of things have changed, right? I mean, what are you hearing differently in that title? Well, it, it gives, it, it, it adds a fuller story right in the title. And it's not a triumphal story in the same way. And it's not about the, uh, the growth of a particular idea or ideal that's in fact itself fictional. Um, it, it's telling a story that involves the people who are actually there, which is uh, a, a slight improvement over the version that McCall was trying to tell us. <laughs> and that is as good a segue as I can imagine into part four of our, our episode today. Let's get into it. This is what I like to call Chris, referring to myself in the third person, as ripping the borders off American history. I want to propose a different way of looking at this whole story of the American, uh, uh, partly the American West, the American expansion, the American nation. Um, and I'm going to start with geography because I like what you're doing earlier with, with the physical geography in, in history. And you're so right. You know, when we do early human history, there's a lot of physical geography. There's river valleys and grasslands and you know, mountain ranges and that sort of thing. And somewhere along the way, it seems to me, and, and you can disagree, but it seems to me we lose that focus on physical geography. Uh, when we start talking about civilizations, we start defining the environment mostly in human terms, uh, kind of human-centric uh, story that, that the environment only plays a kind of bit part in, really, a bit partly because, as you point out, humans prove themselves so able, you know, crossing those physical borders uh, but the one I want to put forward today is a map, and it's one that is inherently familiar to uh, virtually everyone in our country. Uh, it is what uh, the political scientist Benedict Anderson calls the, the logo map, the logo map. And it's featured in a, in a book we've both been reading recently, Daniel Imovar's How to Hide an Empire. Uh, and Imovar makes a lot of use, creative use, of this idea of the logo map. So let me explain what it is so our listeners have a sense. The logo map is simply that familiar emblem of the continental United States. 
uh, a self-contained nation, in other words, uh, representing 48 continental United States, sometimes called the lower 48, bound together inside the familiar frame of borders. Uh, there's the long, mostly straight northern border with Canada, uh, a long southern border with Mexico that at one point becomes the Gulf of Mexico, basically bookended from California to Florida, that southern border. Uh, and the familiar coasts uh, on either end, uh, bordered by the Pacific uh, and Atlantic Oceans. So you have the picture in your mind, right? Uh, that picture of that logo map. Uh, now, as Wint Immervar points out in his book, I mean, there's, a, there's a problem with assuming that the logo map is the self-same you know, uh, territory even as the United States, because as we know, uh, Alaska and Hawaii, which become states uh, in the late 1950s, are, are typically not featured on the logo map. I mean, these days you'll find them on a US map, but usually as a, as a boxed inset where the true size of Alaska is very much diminished and it's sort of up in the corner of, of the map right. playing. Canada, Canada's blacked out just to make it more convenient. Right. Yeah, exactly. Somehow Canada is, yeah. So, um, but it does suggest, I mean, it has its, 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 um, its value in the service of the nation state. It, it suggests, as Imavar says, that the U.S. is a politically uniform space. Uh, an integrated uh, geographical uh, block, if you will. It makes coherent uh, what's really just such a random collection of, of territories. Uh, yeah, and as I'm going to suggest, man, it does a lot, <laughs> it does a lot more uh, damage than that even, because as Imavar wants to call it, you know, is, is a conceptual filing error. <laughs> like, where did we misfile Canada? <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> um, but as a self-contained, integrated, and seemingly, you know, complete solid mass, it requires those of us who teach U.S. history to commit, Josh, an almost unforgivable historical sin. And that is? Well, it requires us to reverse engineer what we call U.S. history, starting with the effect that is the outcome, which is the logo map, and rewinding ourselves back in time to some beginning cause. Uh, I'm picturing a toaster. I'm picturing a toaster that's been taken apart. <laughs> We're now you got to you got to put the toaster back together. But so the 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 end the end is already built into the uh, yes. into the story, right? You know you know damn well what that toaster is going to look like and what it's going to do, because you've already seen it before you start to put it all back together again, right? In other words, your cause is sufficiently pre-programmed to lead us forward to the predetermined outcome or effect, i.e. the logo map, i.e. the nation, i.e. U.S. history. Um, it's a perfect teleology, Josh. One of my favorite words. It's a good, that's a good graduate school word, right? Yeah, you know, uh, well, look, it, it constructs a narrative backward from the outcome and lines up all the causes in perfect chronological order, you know, beginning with now to then from the modern nation state back three or 400 years to, say, the Jamestown colony, you know, the first successful English settlement in North America. So 
it's a history that pretends when we do US history, it's a history that pretends to move chronologically forward as we begin with the colonial era, say, but the future, and here's where you see air quotes around the word future, it moves into has already been determined and faded, if you will, by that looming logo map of historical completion. It's like the destination that has to be arrived at. In other as, words. as soon as we get there, then the, the story gets to end. <laughs> uh, which gives then a prepackaged and reverse engineered meaning to all the events that happened before it. Not history at all, really, would you say? No, it's a constructed narrative that is meant to tell a very particular story. And also in telling that story, get rid of all the little inconveniences and, and messiness and, uh, and the dirt that's actually going into uh, the building of this thing. It get, ends up as this clean, perfect, shiny toaster <laughs> when, when the reality is not, not quite that, that clean. And it produces warm, lovely, buttered bread that everyone can feel really good about. Um, well, look, you know, if you accept that history, and, I, and I, I'll leave you to speak for yourself, but I mean, I, that history genuinely should have no predetermined direction, no prior end point already set out. You know, that, that's exactly what the logo map requires, because at each iteration of American territorial expansion, from Jamestown to the 13 colonies, to the Mississippi, notice the direction we're going west, yeah. and beyond to the Pacific, at every step of the way, the outcome is already preordained. And, and try as we might in teaching this subject, it's in the minds of our students, it's in the minds of our textbook writers, it's in the table of contents of our textbook. And unfortunately, I think it, it ends up being embedded in our minds as well. Never mind that that is not how anyone actually experienced the history at the time. It's us retroactively putting that order and that meaning on the past. The past didn't do that, right? Right. The past reverse engineered. That's, that's, I mean, it's absolutely the perfect way to put it. It's reverse engineered history. And the, the metaphor that I'm actually, it's not the toaster. It's, a, it's one of those kids puzzles where the outline's already there and you just got to mm-hmm. put, the, put the pieces in. You already know what the outline's going to look like. And so the, the story just becomes finding the pieces to then fit in to, uh, to complete that, the, the picture that you're looking for. Yeah, and I, would, I, I love that. And I, sometimes I use that analogy. I would say it's even one of, you know, like one of those first puzzles you get and you're like... That's the one I'm thinking of, yeah. Exactly. There's only like five pieces, you know, and they're color-coded. <laughs> right. So no, you know, US, U.S. history, again, air quotes, U.S. history is just a, a story in that guise told by people of a later period about selected, uh, you know, events and people of earlier periods a story told to justify and legitimize, you know, where, where they or we currently stand to, to ensure that predetermined uh, conclusion, in other words. I mean, I don't want to call this history. I want to call it maybe a cover-up, a justification. Propaganda. Propaganda, an alibi, catechism. A catechism, that's a good one. I like, yeah, you said that before. That's a, that's a great, great way of, of kind of getting across what's happening here is that it's this, this thing you repeat enough and it becomes part of, I, I never went to church. I'm Jewish, but I imagine that's how it is, right? You just, at a certain point, you're just going through the motions of saying the things, you know, when to sit, you know, when to, to kneel, you know, when to stand. And that's what U.S. Right. history has kind of become, right? Its own ritual. Yeah. That is choreographed. And even if you're a good, you know, 
pointy-headed liberal academic uh, historian and want to take on the man, you know, it, it ends up being an apology because you're still, you know, you're still reading everything into what that logo map requires, you know, and so. Yeah, uh, and, yeah. And you're not telling a new story. You're just you're just countering the old story in many ways, right? You're still you're still yeah. tied to that story. Yes. And constantly having to argue against this thing that you know that they're bringing in with them. Yep. You're still in enthralledum to that um, that logo map with its well defined appearance of, of unity, uh, unity of the present and unity of the past. You know, all within the comforting constructs of of borders. And, uh, you know, with the irrefutable demands of nationalism that it symbolizes, you know, it's, it's the main culprit, I think, and why we have to rip the borders off of, uh, of U.S. history and move to a different map, uh, a map, one that sounds more like the, those, those maps that you do in early world history, defined more by physical geography than political geography or at least one without pre-populated national borders, you know, that, that validate a reversed engineered ahistorical conceit called nationalism. Does that, does that make sense? No. And I, I we, you know, we were kind of texting about this and at a certain point, these kind of maps, what they're, they're almost intended to do is, is obscure, right? They're not intended in some ways to reveal anything. They're intended to, to obscure what's, what actually happened at a certain point. I'm so glad you said that. Um, because you are right on the money there. Uh, these, these maps and these borders, traditionally understood representing US history, do as much obscuring and hiding and concealing as they do revealing. And that's what, uh, that's what I wanna suggest here. And this is, this is a lot of information and I have all kinds of sympathy for, for our listeners. So I'm gonna do it in outline form today, but I, I see us returning to these subjects you know, really along the way of our own podcast, you know, as, as ways of, um, you know, carrying, carrying our, our stories forward, that is our alternative stories forward, um, you know, bit by bit, not, not necessarily all at once. And so what I want to start with today, you know, is a different map. And it's the one that you mentioned earlier. And we're going to try to figure out a way to get up in our program notes so people can look at it compared to the logo map. But it's a map that, you know, starts, instead of starting at the familiar starting line of U.S. history, that is colonial history, uh, around the 13 colonies, you know, and their arbitrary political uh, borders along the Atlantic coast, sort of sandwiched between the Atlantic and the Appalachian Range. Uh, Instead, I want to substitute that other map you were describing, a map of physical geography, recentering the history along this other map with a vast area of the Great Lakes and Canada and parts of what become the territorial United States, uh, basically at the center of the story, all right? So here's what I mean. If you can, in your mind, imagine a a gigantic letter V. uh, And the point of the V is somewhere in, in the middle of the Mississippi River. And so the arms of the V point northward, right? One in a slightly eastern direction, another in a slightly western direction. And they cross over the Great Lakes. And the eastern part of that V is somewhere near the St. Lawrence uh, Seaway in eastern Canada. And the western part of that V is pointing more toward the prairies, the Canadian prairies, say Lake Winnipeg. Uh, 
uh, once you look at that map, as you pointed out, without the, the arbitrary, you know, political borders written into it, what you notice right away, a couple of things. One is the St. Lawrence Seaway was the great entryway into North America, unlike the Atlantic colonies that still had that formidable Appalachian boundary. Those who came up the St. Lawrence found themselves deep into the interior of the North American continent. So that's one thing. The other thing is that the rivers and lakes that you see on this map, and they include the Great Lakes, generally flow in this kind of southern direction where they join up with other tributaries and, and uh, uh, lakes and you know, sort of intermediate points uh, and all sort of, you know, eventually kind of find their way to the Great Basin of, of the North American continent, which is the Mississippi, right? Uh, flowing south toward the Mississippi River, in other words. And you'll know, I mean, some of these rivers and places have European names, French and English, and others have, have native names. So clearly the map is also a product of those uh, various influences, which is one of the reasons I like it, you know, so that it's not so terribly ethnocentric as the beginning point of the English colonies always is. So it all seems to come together at a point this map does, the V on the Mississippi, the point of the V, now we call it St. Louis, right? Uh, but the, you know, the interesting thing has occurred to me, and I'll, I'll uh, throw it to you as the world historian, is that before it was St. Louis, a few centuries, in fact, before Europeans ever arrived, it was Cahokia, the great river trading empire of the Mississippi Basin, which suggests to me that the story doesn't begin with Jamestown, nor does this story of physical geography and history start even then with, say, Columbus. It starts pre-Columbia, right? It yeah. starts with the peoples, the native peoples, who had already humanized these landscapes, found ways to cross these boundaries uh, to the betterment of their, uh, their social lives, their, 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 their tribal lives, their, uh, their kinship networks, et cetera. In other words, this story goes back. Do you agree? Yeah, and I, just one of the things I was thinking about as you were saying that is, you know, we want to make this environmental history connection here there's a case out there that the reason why a place like Cahokia, Cahokia declined was actually the same reason the Mongol Empire declined because the earth started getting cooler in the 14th century and a lot of the, uh, the resources that these societies were dependent upon started going away. And so Cahokia formed in a period of relative warm temperatures. The grasslands grew, the animals increased, the plant life increased. And then when things took a downturn in the 14th century, that's when Cahokia which had been this, this, the biggest city in North America, uh, I'm sorry, biggest city outside of Mesoamerica in North America, right. uh, suddenly, uh, quite rapidly actually declined and, and virtually disappeared. Yeah, and the biggest city, by the way, if I remember correctly, until Philadelphia, Pennsylvania in the 19th century will eclipse its population. But I, yeah, I really like what you're saying there because in addition to being less anthropocentric, you know, when you start with a, a physical geography as opposed to a political geography, um, you're introducing all the very real environmental players back into the story. You know, whether it be cooling, global cooling, drought, what have you, you know, the over-farming of a region, loss of soil, fertility. Uh, and, and part of what I'm arguing today is to get a, a proper history, we need to be much more conscious of that environmental role that, that is as, a, as an actor 
in and of itself really in history as we do the human uh, actors in the story. Um, by the time the Europeans show up, this, this region it has a French name. It's called the Pas-Deno. The Pas-Deno, you'll have to forgive my, my raggedy French. Um, it basically was a French word that meant upper country. But it was that whole region, that whole greater Great Lakes region as far south as that point on the Mississippi, the Pas-Deno. And much of this whole region, you know, appears, if you compare it, if you superimpose it over the logo map, appears only at the edges of the logo map story because it includes, among other things, Canada, right? And yet the logo map imposes those arbitrary political boundaries. This was an integrated region. Uh, the peoples who lived there, including the Europeans who showed up, understood it as an integrated region. It wasn't, there were these, not these artificial divides that somehow separated the stories of the people. The stories themselves were integrated. And so what I'm going to suggest is that as a starting point for the story of, of American history, and by that I mean North American history, you know, what's at stake here? Well, the winners, the losers, those stories who are told of uh, the people who are told and those stories of the people who are otherwise forgotten in the nation state history, suddenly all that opens up. And as you said earlier, instead of obscuring the richer, deeper, more complex, true history, you know, we're giving rise to it, we're giving it voice. And so I wanted to, uh, I wanted to give the scholar here whose, whose work I'm using in this particular, um, this particular episode, that's Michael McDonald's uh, Masters of Empire, Great Lakes Indians and the Making of America. Um, McDonald writes, Native Americans, especially in the Pai-Denon, have almost invariably appeared and disappeared, and disappeared, as he says, at a presence, or excuse me, at a correspondence whim, that is the native people who disappear from the story, at a correspondence whim, apparently a volatile, fleeting, and ephemeral presence throughout the colonial period. They have been noticed by historians only when called on stage by imperial officials and scribes. So it's that obscuring effect that you were talking about that we have to reverse. Uh, and instead of being at the whim of European scribes and imperial officials, we open that story back up to reveal the much uh, bigger story, as I say. So we're restoring native people, we're restoring uh, native environments to a place that they actually occupied in the history of North America, and, and thus has a much better argument for a starting place or a center place of a much bigger uh, history. And though I don't have time, you know, to, to fairly, you know, flesh out all those diverse peoples today, you know, one thing McDonald uses and other uh, Native American scholars have used are, are the terms that the Native people themselves use. So the Anishinaabe, for example, the Anishinaabe is a term of, of networking tribal peoples across that broad region. They, that, is, that is the term they use to reference their extended kinship networks, political ties, uh, economic and commercial shared interests. Uh, and, it, and the Anishinaabe were made up of scores of then separate tribal peoples. Uh, 
some of the principal players I'll mention in a minute, but the center of the Anishinaabe story, the center of the Pai Den Halt, the physical geography of the Greater Great Lakes, was not then obviously Boston or Philadelphia or, or New York. How about Mishala Mackinac? Josh, you familiar with that place? Mackinac Peninsula, is that the same, yeah. same place? What sure, that's of- how you non uh, uh, peninsulares would refer to it. Right. We know that the sea is silent. Uh, so it's uh, Michelin Mackinac. Of course. We can blame the... Mackinac. Uh, yeah, we can blame the French for that. Uh, but Michelin Mackinac, yeah, up on the, on the lower peninsula of what is now modern Michigan, where the three great lakes, right? It's like Superior, uh, Lake Michigan, Lake Huron, uh, come together. This is the door to North America, as McDonald calls it. That makes a much better, a more logical starting place and center point for understanding, like the hub of a wheel, understanding as as the spokes radiate outward, how these other subsequent related histories, including ultimately the national history of of the U.S. plays out. Uh, It was an Ojibwa word, uh, Mackinac. Uh, actually, they pronounce Mission Nini Makanung, but it gets Europeanized. It meant a great or connecting place. They were aware of it. They understood its centrality. Uh, European officials had to scratch their heads, you know, on the Atlantic coast. They always wanted to know where the borders were. Right, right, right. No, and the native people were like sort of stupefied by that. I think, what are you talking about? You know, it's, it's here, you know, from the St. Lawrence to the Mississippi, this uh, Anishinaabeg this network of native peoples and their shared languages, culture, kinship, how different, in other words, things look when you start at that center and tell that story, even from the pre-Columbian point, right on through the imperial era of France and England and in the national period of the United States. Because let me let me add, the, those people are still there, by the way, the Ojibwa people, the Ottawa people who are at the heart of the Anishinaabe network uh, are still there. Uh, they were never removed. You know, that's the other language of the U.S. Na- National Survey, U.S. History Survey, is the, the language of Indian removal, right? But not all yeah. Native people were removed, and, and, and they weren't removed. Um, uh, as MacDonald writes, you know, not, not one fur, not one canoe, not one expedition from either the French or the British empires would have made it into the Paiden Hall without the assistance and consent of the Native people of the Straits at this place, Michelamackinac. Uh, it's an actual geographical point, right? And beyond that, there would have been no posts built by Europeans, no British forts, no French trading posts, no expeditions, maybe what? No Lewis and Clark, at least not the way the logo map prescribes it. And here's why. Because the Bay were the great power brokers of that great physical region of physical geography. They were the arbiters. They were the power brokers uh, who decided how these empires came in, when they came in, how they did business. And and by the way, the great touchstone was the fur trade, right? And I think you could speak to that as a a world historian, the importance, you know, of the fur trade in in the 17th, 18th century. It's a globalizing trade, right? You have Chinese wearing, you know, Canadian furs and that sort of thing. Am I right? Yeah, and just to connect things up, you know, I talked about the cooling period that begins in the 14th, in the 14th century. The, the rise of the fur trade is connected to that, that all these people in the Northern Hemisphere suddenly needed warmer clothes. And, and that's where you start seeing, I mean, the Russians start spreading across 
uh, you know, the, uh, the Siberia to, to the Pacific. You get the English and the French trying to find access to furs in North America. You've got uh, the Japanese uh, otter hunting in the Pacific. Uh, so it's, it's all connected to this environmental history. Yeah, I love that uh, because it shows it's not just the history of North America. Ultimately, we're talking about is this region uh, connecting to a larger global uh, story as, as well. And so we're restoring not only Native people their own history, but their place in a global history. Um, yeah, yeah, subject to the same. Leader, one tribal leader told a British official in 1760, all the Indians in this country are allies to each other and as one people. Well, okay, even if he was exaggerating a bit for, for effect with the British, there's no question, and scholars certainly now agree, that a powerful and expansive network of alliances throughout the Great Lakes was really the fulcrum of not only a longstanding North American history, but once Europeans arrive, of the next three centuries of that Euro-American history as well. Um, and this was a region dominated, again, not by the fiction of imaginary political geography, you know, dreamed up in the future to justify a past, but by the physical geography and topography, by the peoples and landscapes and riverscapes, and vast lake regions and hunting grounds and fisheries and endless variety of flora and fauna that was much the center of the history, even as the you know, the people themselves. And so, you know, what I'm proposing, and, and it's not my unique suggestion, I'm, I'm working on the shoulder of, of scholars who have done the hard work, like you said, of the, of the, the archivists and, and, the, and the people, the ethnographers and others. Uh, this expansive physical geography contained many of the essential elements that would go into making the history of, of North America, as I say. So it's, it's a story you know, not separate from the resulting stories, imperial stories and national stories, even the American Revolution, as we know, is tied directly into what's happening in the Pai Den Hall because it's the British attempt to put a lid on native discontent out in the Ohio Valley and the Great Lakes region that, that has them drawing the proclamation line of 1763, which so fires the passions of the colonists who resent being bounded in by this political boundary that a series of events will eventually lead to what we know uh, as the American Revolution. Uh, so there's no disconnect even there. You know, we still, what we're doing is we're integrating a peripheral story of what becomes United States history into a center perspective grounded in this, this geography of the North American, uh, you know, center. Uh, and uh, let me finish just with, um, you know, one final uh, quote here. Uh, what this, uh, from, from, uh, uh, from McDonald, what this long history reveals most then is that we cannot understand the history of early America without comprehending Indian country on its own terms. At the very least, he writes, a more complete history of this critical period has to take into account a diverse range of viewpoints and perspectives that together shaped European empires and the looming nations of North America. From offering furs and allowing trade to goading imperial schemers and sparking wars, the Anishinaabe Odawa at Mishilmackinac helped precipitate critical turning points in this history. Both French and British dreams of expansive colonies and imperial dominance grew and foundered, at least in part, in Indian country. 
Certainly the history of North America would look very different had the nations of the Pied-Denon made different choices about their relationships with Europeans. What happened at Michilimackinac mattered. It shaped early America and the world in which we now live. That's really great. And it's, the crazy thing is, I find that's such a more compelling story than the story that's normally told. Thanks. To me, that just sounds like such more of an interesting kind of history to, to hear about than, than the, the traditional catechism, as we've talked about, that you tend to get in, in schools. Um, so hopefully that's, that's the history that will take over. I have a few, few things I wanted to add. Uh, you know, in episode one, we were talking about, you were talking about getting rid of the U.S. History Survey and I asked you, well, what do we get rid of it? You know, we get rid of it. What are we going to replace it with? And as you were talking, it kind of occurred to me that, that what you're proposing here is the replacement, that yes. the story that you're telling is a story of a territory and the people it contains rather than the story of a people and the land they occupy. Right. Absolutely. So you're, 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 you're shifting things around and not just saying now these people move here. So that becomes part of our story. And now those people are pushed out. So they get, they're not in our story any longer. You're taking the territory removed. and everything yeah. in it becomes the story. And not, and not just the people I'd only hasten to add is I know you agree the whole suite of environmental factors, living yeah. things. Organic Absolutely. That's, things. that's what I mean by the territory. The territory itself yeah. is, is the object of, of, uh, of study, right? Absolutely. Um, couple other things I wanted to, to throw in here. So, so that to me is a compelling idea that, that the territory is something you can study and then what happens in the territory becomes, you know, the, the, the story that gets told in, in the histories. Um, but as, as you were talking about just the, the way that, um, that natives disappear from the story, they arrive and they disappear. I was looking, I was looking at, this is going to sound, this is kind of embarrassing. I was looking through my dissertation. Uh, the other day. I have not probably opened that thing in five years, maybe. All right. But I was, I, there was a particular th- quote I was looking for. And I happened to came across, come across in chapter six, I was talking about kind of comparing the way that the Spanish envisioned their empire versus how the English and the, and the, the Dutch in particular thought about empire in, in North America. And the, the thing that, that stood out in that comparison is that the Spanish were always very clear about who lived on the land, right? That they, they took the land, it was a violent process, they conquered, they talked about their movement into, into the Americas as conquest. They were very uh, direct about, about what happened. Um, whereas when you look at, at what the English and the Dutch did, they constantly took the natives out of the story, right? They removed them from the story in, in so many ways. And I just wanted to give this one quote I found. So this is a this is from a book called Description of the New Netherlands by Adrian Vanderdonk. Great name, right? Adrian Vanderdonk. He's writing, uh, you know, about the New Netherlands at the time. So it's a primary source from the 17th century. And he's trying to make the case for why there should be no question of, of Dutch legitimacy in their rule over New Nether- New ne- the New Netherlands. And he says, quote, that this country was first found or discovered by the Netherlanders is evident and clear from the fact that the Indians or natives of the land, many of whom are still living, declare freely that before the Dutch arrival in the year 1609, they did not know that there were other people in the world uh, than those who were like themselves. (laughs) And then I added, so this is the embarrassing part, quoting myself, as an argument, we know we were the first people there because the people already living there told us is not particularly convincing, but is certainly revealing (laughs) of a general attitude. (laughs) So just that, that disappearance in literally the sources at the time, you know, uh, don't talk about conquest. They don't talk about the people being there as being relevant. 
They're simply people who need to get out of the way so that the story can continue. And so, you know, the idea that this is not just a, a part of this national history, it was written into the histories as it was happening in many cases, um, in, in a way that we really don't see with the Spanish for all their faults in, in the way they conquered and, and all the, the persecutions and massacres and, and, and things of that nature. They always recognized the existence of those native people in a way that, that often didn't happen in, in the history of the English and the Dutch, uh, you know, in, in their own stories of, of occupation. That's extraordinary um, logic, and it, and it really gets to the heart of why we need to change this story. Because it's, I mean, it's equivalent of saying, if I'm a Native person, I've never heard of you, and you show up one day, and I tell you I've never heard of you, then that gives you all the license you need to claim that you're the first person there. That's the, the sort of illogic of the, the nation-state history narrative. So I, I wanted to end with a, with a quote um, that, you know, we live in, these times are tough right now. There's a lot going on. Uh, there's a lot of reason to be pessimistic. And I wanted to read this quote because while it sounds grim, there is a, 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 a little bit of light coming through in this quote. And so I think it's appropriate for our, for our times. This comes from a, an English merchant named Kellum Throgmorton, which is a pretty good name, Kellum Throgmorton. And Kellum was a merchant in the East Indies. Um, and his company, the English East Indies Company, was competing with the Dutch in the East Indies, and Kellum had been captured by the Dutch and thrown into prison. So this is his description. He says, they kept 12 of us in a dungeon where they pissed and shat upon our heads, and this manner we lay until we were broken out from top to toe like lepers. And then here's the part where we can get a little bit of sustenance from this. He says, but God will provide for his servants, though he give these horse turds leave to domineer a while. So just remember, that although the horse turds may be in charge right now, nothing lasts forever, and we will get out of this. I'm so happy I wasn't the only one to introduce scatological language in today's highbrow discussion. We got to end. We got to begin and end with it, right? That's that's the new uh, that's the new thing we're doing. Well, it leaves me hungry for more, my friend. All right. Oh, so lastly, I know there's one more thing we need to talk about. Last week we said we're going to do it biweekly. But popular demand is is has been uh, such such that I think we're going to try to keep doing it weekly for from for now at least, uh, get some momentum, uh, give you guys the the sweet sweet content you need, and then you know as things get more uh, complex as as time goes on, we might need to go biweekly at a certain point. But for the foreseeable future, let's uh, let's do let's do weekly. We'll put them out every Friday. We'll, we'll say for for the foreseeable future. Yeah, if nothing else, just think how much it'll, fun it'll be to watch us crash. Oh yeah, I mean, if you could see us, we're we're, we're breaking down, right? <laughs> Bags in our eyes, beards getting longer. Uh, it's not it's not good on the, on either end here, but uh, but we're gonna put out that content for you guys because that's what you deserve. All right, everybody. See you next time. See you next time. So we were stuck, stuck in a cycle, so we were